We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, let us begin. We're in Matthew 15. I might have misspoken earlier if I did. Forgive me, I uh, indicated something about speaking on uh, some matter of apologetics in terms of the deity of Christ. We will touch on that in this message, but my main focus uh, of thought was that I'm going to share that on, in Sunday school on Sunday morning. So bear with me as I prepare that message. I was reading in a, a book this morning that uh, inspired that whole line of thought, and I said, well, I'm just going to take this, and I'm going to respond to every point that is in there, and hopefully that will help us to um, be ready to minister to those who deny the deity of Christ, which is actually quite a... Uh, long list of religious systems that do that. We're in Matthew 15, though, tonight, starting in verse 29, and the Bible says that uh, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them uh, the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now we saw last time in verses 21 to 28 that the mercy and compassion of Jesus extended to the Gentiles. Remember that he healed the daughter of a a Syrophoenician woman. Uh, She came to him begging for assistance, and uh, he ignored her at first. uh, And what he was doing was kind of setting the table to have a display of her Gentile faith that was um, like some of the other expressions of faith in him, uh, very extraordinary and uh, is an, a great example for us. So he set that table using that conduct in order to display that faith to us. Even in uh, the initial phase of his ministry, he did this. Now remember, his initial phase of ministry was focused on the Jewish people. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles, to those in the wider Hellenistic world, just to the the Jewish people. Why? Because he was offering them their kingdom, which was promised to them in the Old Testament. Uh, As we know, though, in Matthew chapter 12, they began to display signs that they were going to reject that offer entirely. And so the Lord expands his ministry. We saw he was up in Tyre and then on the way up to Sidon, And the text says that the Lord departed and went along the Sea of Galilee. Now, the map is much larger than you might think. Um, It's not just like he walked a a couple hours to Tyre and then to Sidon, you know, some afternoon. And then, I mean, this is a long distance, you know, journey. Um, So as I take it, it's, uh, he goes, you know, the 40 to 60 miles up to Sidon, and then it comes back around and down south on the other side of the Jordan. Do you know what I mean by the other side of the Jordan? That is the eastern side, opposite side than than Jerusalem is on. 
So he was quite a few miles north. He looped around. That's what the verb is, to skirt the Sea of Galilee, to go around it, um, and uh, came to the other side of the Jordan. Now, if I were to ask you where that was, you might have a hard time telling me the name of a city or a place that it was. But let me give you an assist here in Mark chapter 7 and verse number 31, which is the same context, the chapter of the Syrophoenician woman. In fact, that's where we learned that she was uh, a Syrophoenician, a Greek uh, by birth. And uh, he uh, says in verse 31, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So he must have gone way around and come over from the east well, from your perspective, come down. If the Sea of Galilee is here, he's up here. He comes way around and, and like this, like from the east or even the southeast from, from the perspective of Decapolis. Decapolis um, is from the word, the two roots actually, deca, which is ten, and polis, which is cities, city, meaning the ten cities or towns. Historically, a league of ten towns on the other side of the Jordan, except for one city in that group, which was uh, Scythopolis, which was just on this side of the Jordan River, south of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, some of the cities that were in that grouping, I didn't write them all down, but one of them was Philadelphia. One was Gerasa, another Gadara. You recognize Gadara? the man of the Gadarenes, then there's Hippos or Hippos, and then finally, probably the most well-known of all of them down to this day, Damascus. Damascus, which was way up in the north relative to the Sea of Galilee. So uh, those were some of the the league of of cities that uh, we are mentioning here in Decapolis. Now, where else do we read about Decapolis? Decapolis is talked about in Mark chapter 5. Remember, I just said Mark 7, the Lord goes back there uh, to Decapolis. Well, I say back there because he actually was there before. In Mark chapter 5, the scripture tells us a fascinating story about a demon-possessed man. It says that they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes, and when they got out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And this fellow was, you know, bound with chains. He couldn't, you know, they couldn't hold him. He broke those in pieces. He was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. I mean, he was a terrorist of the neighborhood. They couldn't contain him. And so he comes and worships Jesus, falls down at his feet, not in the sense of Christian worship, but in the sense of submission to the deity because he was really being activated by the demons And the Lord uh, casts the demons out. They go into a herd of swine. The people see this and they, as you recall, they were like super, you know, fearful. And they said, look to Jesus, get out of here. Just leave, leave us, get out of this area. And um, when he got into the boat, verse 18 says, he who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. Well, that's a smart idea because this guy knows that we're, The the source of the power that healed him was Christ. He wanted to be close to him. But it says, however, verse 19, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has has had compassion on you. 
And so the man departed and began to proclaim where? In Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I don't know what that looked like, but I mean, I'm thinking this region is a huge area, and maybe many of the people heard about this maniac in the tombs at Gadara, and he now had an opportunity to go and tell the people, look, I'm that man, and here's what God, through the Lord Jesus, did for me. So he went back and proclaimed it. People were amazed. And I, I just have kind of come to realize that this man was sort of like the John the Baptist of the other side of the Jordan. He was a man who was a messenger who was sent before Jesus so that the second time Jesus came to Decapolis in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, that he's already been spoken about throughout the whole region. Does that make sense? And so he is like John the Baptist, a messenger preparing the people for this visit of the Lord to their area. So the Lord comes in verse 29. And he went up on a mountain and sat down there. Now, remember, when we talk about mountains in the Bible, um, we're not talking about Mount you know, Everest or McKinley, um, Denali, or you know, some of the other you know, Kilimanjaro kinds of things in the Himalayas. It would be a relatively modest mountain in our parlance. Um, Of course, if you had to walk from sea level up to the top of one of these mountains, you'd probably be a little out of breath. Uh, Several mountains in in the Syria area, for example, I'm not saying this was in Syria, but just in that general area, there were several mountains five to 6,000 feet in elevation. So, you know, mile high kinds of things. No, that's not, that's not too small of a mountain, but it's not like 20,000 feet or 29,000 feet or something. Um, so he comes there and he takes up his normal posture, which we know from Matthew uh, 5 to 7, he sits down to teach, uh, to sits down to minister. Well, it doesn't say that he teaches here, although I can't imagine that he didn't, but the focus is on the multitudes that came in verse 30. And uh, they brought all these people with him. Uh, Now, the healing of the demoniac was troubling to them back in chapter 5. So either we have a present, a group of people who have changed their mind about Jesus generally or a different subgroup that weren't so negatively impacted by the activity of, you know, weeks or months earlier when he was there before. They were more, maybe more receptive to the notion of exorcism of demons or they were changed in their minds because of what the demoniac, former demoniac, had said to them. You know, look at what the Lord has done for me. And so they're thinking, huh, if, they, if Jesus comes again, I'm going to take my people who are sick to him because if he could help this demoniac, he can certainly help us. And so they saw the long-lasting transformation of the former demoniac that Jesus saved from that life of demonism and somehow that had a great impact uh, in, their, in their thinking. Well, in any case, a huge crowd brought sick people with them, and these people include a laundry list of folks. First of all, you have what? The lame. Lame. I take that to mean they were unable to walk easily. Uh, this could be uh, any number of maladies uh, from uh, congenital to worn out joints due to old age. 
and uh, injuries and everything. It's similar with a lot of these. They also brought blind people. They could not see with their eyes. Now, blindness then was probably a little bit different than we think of blindness now because we're so accustomed to, you know, so many health problem, problems and even, you know, lack of proper eyesight being able to be fixed. Can you imagine? You know, one of our sisters just testified to me that some years ago she was blind in one eye. And uh, the medical technology allowed her to get a cornea transplant, maybe a lens too. I don't know for sure. I, that stuff is not my, my uh, wheelhouse. Uh, eye surgery is not my thing. Uh, it's just kind of weird to think about cutting on eyeballs and things. But they fixed her up so she can see just fine. And, but we don't, these people didn't have that. Cataracts, macular degeneration, and infection of the cornea, uh, very poor eyesight, astigmatisms from birth. You know, when, when, I mean, if you didn't have gla- glasses, what are glasses? You couldn't see anything. I mean, some people without their glasses are in pretty rough shape being able, as far as sight goes. So um, they had all of this stuff going on, physical injuries, congenital blindness, all severe hazards that we know very little about today because of improved medical technology. At least we, now of course some do in their personal experience, they've lost an eye or whatever. Um, thank God for being able to see and hear and speak and touch and, and the smell and all. Then there thirdly was a group of people who were mute, unable to speak, whether due to injury to the vocal cord, a stroke, autism, or other problems. It's still an issue today for many. Often this is coupled with deafness because if somebody's deaf, it's hard for them to learn how to speak properly, isn't it? It's not impossible, but it it is difficult. Um, And so then you have the maimed, crippled, often regarding malformed or non-functional hands or feet. This, again, could be congenital from a stroke, from an injury. Many other afflictions would fit under this general term of maimed or crippled. And then it says at the end, of verse number um, 30, uh, and well, almost at the end of verse number 30, and many others, many others. The, li- the list above seems daunting if you think about it. The Lord is just faced with people who are, who are damaged, you know, in their heads, their hands, their legs, their bodies. They might have like dropsy, cancer, all kinds of issues, many others. Stop and think about the various ways that people can become ill or they can have various health problems. Have you ever had somebody in your acquaintance or we've prayed for somebody and you said, I have never heard of that disease before in my life. I've had, you know, you probably have had that. I've had that. Like, what are you talking about? Like that, that's another way that people can go, you know, haywire. Our bodies can go haywire. Um, You'd never be able to list them all. University of Michigan Medical School estimate is that there are roughly 10,000 human diseases Now, many of those are what they call rare or orphan diseases. You know, very few people have them. But, of course, there are still hundreds of common diseases. This is because the human body is so complex in terms of its structure and chemistry. There are a myriad of ways that it can break. I mean, the more complicated the machine, the more ways there are that it can go wrong. And that's what we have here. The people laid their sick folk before the Lord at his feet. They were submitting himself, themselves to his healing power. Um, and you can just imagine on the opposite side somebody saying, no, I'm not going to him. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'll, I'm just happy. I'll be fine just the way I am. I'm not going to go and 
and the, you know, bother Jesus or something uh, because they didn't have the faith that he could heal them. But some did. And he healed them, it says. And end of verse number 30, now at the end of the verse, it says, and he healed them. There's not, you know, tremendous uh, narrative of, you know, all the different things that happened and, you know, making Jesus be like a 12-foot-tall, you know, superhuman and all that. Just, and he healed them. He just healed them. Uh, the uh, crowds were amazed because he was pouring out power in a miraculous way at the rate of many per hour. Where has this ever happened in the history of the world? Where has this happened in the history of the world? I mean, think of Moses. Um, think of uh, you know Elijah and Elisha. They did some miracles, but not this many not at this rate. So everything okay back there or should we pause? (laughs) Keep going if I like. All right. Well, maybe you can uh, record it or something. But anyways, um, so the crowds were then therefore what? Amazed. See that? The multitude marveled. When they saw the mute speaking, the uh, lame walking, the maimed made whole, the blind were seeing. You know, this was no modern healing miracle or uh, healing service. You know what I'm talking about, a healing service where people go to get healed and and nobody actually ever does get healed? (laughs) Yeah, so this was real and beyond human explanation. As should be the case, they, they glorified the God of Israel they, they didn't recognize, however, that God was standing in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So um, his ministry was somewhat undercover to glorify the Father instead of glorifying himself. Such glory would come later after his kenosis and suffering. But uh, so you understand what I'm saying? Like he's, he's kind of almost... In a way, as, as a servant of the Father, he's kind of behind the scenes in a sense almost. Like he's, his glory is not displayed like it uh, would be at the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. And so they glorified the God of Israel when they could just as well have glorified the Son of God, the God of Israel, the, the one who was the Messiah. But in any case, he will be glorified openly later. He didn't have to be glorified uh, openly now. Now, what's happening here? In accordance with Old Testament teaching, God was authenticating Jesus as his messenger and more than a messenger. And I, I was reflecting on these um, sections from Deuteronomy the other night, and I thought I'd just bring them briefly again to you. How are the Jewish people supposed to know that Jesus was the real article, was the genuine article? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 13 says that if somebody comes and teaches you to go against the God of Israel and go some other way, then you're supposed to, you know, be done with them, (laughs) punish them with death. Well, the Lord was calling them to faithfulness to God. In Deuteronomy 18, 21 to 22, that's the chapter where Moses promises that a prophet like me will be raised up. And uh, he says, "If if a prophet says something to you, and it doesn't come to pass, ignore him. Well, the Lord Jesus 
does all these miracles. He predicts certain things. He predicts he's going to rise from the dead, and then he does. And um, so the Lord is authenticating this prophet. And he, by the way, also is king and priest. But this is what part of the function of these miracles is. I mean, I tried to emphasize that when I said he was pouring out miracles from, his, from himself, you know, like at a rate that's you couldn't almost keep up with it. I mean, he heals this person, this person, this person, all these different maladies, and, and within the space of hours, they're all done, healed, they go back home, and they're, they're like they, they never had that problem before. This is unheard of. This is a tremendous, tremendous situation. So God is authenticating Jesus as his messenger and, and more than a mere messenger, of course. We move on then to the feeding of the 4,000, and we're not going to spend as much time here as what we did when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. There's a lot of things that are similar here um, than, you know, than the one that was recorded just in the prior chapter, chapter 14, believe it or not. We haven't been there in a little bit, but um, that's just one chapter ago. So once again, the Lord has compassion on the people that are with him that he's healing, um, and I have compassion, he says in verse 32, on the multitude, because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. You know, this is like uh, going to um, Jack and Jennifer Mitchell's dental clinic and sitting there waiting for three days to have your tooth pulled or your infection f- fixed or, or whatever you need um, and not having enough food that you've brought with you to sustain you for three days. They might have brought enough for two days, you know, or one day, and then they're saying, well, we're here, we're going to stay here, we won't eat, you know, and they don't, they're just running out of strength. They have to go back home. Jesus says, I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So this isn't, you know, the Lord, you know, saying that he's worried that, you know, they haven't topped up their calories for the day. This is like they need basic necessities here to get, to get them home. So he had compassion on them and they saw they needed nourishment for their journey back. Once again, the disciples expressed doubt that they had enough to feed these people. Same kind of thing as before. They said in verse 33, his disciples said, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to feed such a great multitude? So Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So, I mean, you can imagine if you would, you're staring at a group of 4,000 men with their wives and children or singles and, and, and older folks, you're looking at 10,000 people, maybe minimum. I don't know what the number is, but they're very careful to note 4,000 men, 4,000 kind of units, if you will, and then you have all the rest, the family units make up you know, 10,000 souls or more perhaps. That's a large banquet by anyone's standards, as, as you know if you've tried to feed a large group. What's the largest group you've tried to feed before? <laughs> I mean, think of how much it would cost to feed 10,000 people one meal, you know. We're, we're rightly shocked by our trips to the grocery stores these days and how much it costs us to fill up the refrigerator. But 10,000 people, imagine 10,000 people. So the Lord asked, what do you already have? He was going to use what they had as a starting point. May I apply? In your service to God, use what you already have to start. Don't ask God for more to serve him with if you're not already serving him all out. You know what I'm saying? 
You use what you have. They were going to use, or Jesus was going to use what they already had. So the Lord directed the meal by having the people sit down. He took the loaves and the fish and gave thanks to the Father and then distributed them. Obviously, the miracle happens right in there when he's giving thanks and the blessing comes. The multiplication happens. They feed all these people. They ate. They were filled. Uh, They were, you know, probably some of them stuffed had enough for the way now, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. In other words, there was, and what does it say, by the way? They took up seven large baskets full of the fragments. Undoubtedly, there was more left over at the end than there was at the beginning. That's not usually how leftovers work, is it? Yeah, unfortunately. Now, a secular person will scoff at this and dismiss it as a legend or a myth, but we believe in the eyewitness reports that are recorded here because of the nature of the case. You know, who we're talking about is Jesus. The evidence from other sources, meaning the other gospel messages or gospel uh, you know, books, the transformation in our own lives and the illumination by the Holy Spirit make it so that we can understand and, ad- and adopt this, embrace it for ourselves, so we have no reason to doubt what is written down here. Okay, so no unbelief here, please. Um, so all that's done, like I said, we'll quickly you know, hasten through the feeding of the 4,000, very similar to the 5,000. Then it says, he sent away the multitude, this is verse 39, and got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. Magdala or Magdala, Magdala. Uh, sounds kind of like Mary Magdalene. <laughs> the one from Magdala. Um, If you picture in your mind, again, geography, he's on the other side of the Jordan. If this is the Jordan, here's the Sea of Galilee, the the, the Jordan River. He's over here somewhere. He gets up to Galilee, and he travels east or maybe north, sorry, west or northwest across the Sea of Galilee. And he goes across the widest expanse of that because at the widest point on uh, for, from your perspective, on the west is Magdala at that very most wide point of the Sea of Galilee towards the north end of it. So um, that's where he goes and continues his ministry. Now, I, I close with this. The miracles are uh, here to authenticate Jesus as a messenger of God, and it convinced the churches that were reading Matthew's gospel that this really is the one who claims to be, the, the, the one that Matthew presents him as, the king, son of Abraham, the son of David, son of God, obviously, Luke would add later on, but he's the king, he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's the miracle worker, he is the son of God. This is what Matthew is trying to prove to them and show them. So he's authenticating Jesus as a messenger and also as the son of God. And if you think about how this fits together with John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, it's interesting because... So what I'm, I'm now introducing the kind of apologetical element of this, the defense of the faith. John chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Therefore the Jews... Well, let me back up. Um, he, the Lord had done something on the Sabbath. The Jews were all upset about that. Jesus answered them in verse 17 of John 5, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, that was problem number one, 
But he also said that God was his father, making himself what? Equal with God. That's problem number two, and that was the big one. Making himself equal with God. His enemies understood him to be saying, I and the Father are not just one in purpose or one in some kind of generic way, but we are the same. We are of the same nature and essence. This is how we express it in Christian theology. John says the Lord is claiming equality with the Father. And if you read through the remainder of the chapter, let me just summarize it for you without reading through down to verse 47. What John exposes us to is this. He talks us to us about Jesus being able to give life, that he's responsible for all judgment. You know how people think, you know, I'm going to go before whoever their God is in their mind, whether it's, you know, Allah or, or whoever, you know, God as they perceive him, and they think they're going to be judged and, you know, led into heaven or not. The fact of the matter is you are going to be judged by the one to whom God has entrusted judgment. Acts chapter 17 says, verse 30 and 31, that is Jesus Christ, by which he's given assurance to us by this, that he's raised him from the dead, Paul says in Acts chapter 17. So he's the judge. God has committed all judgment into his hand. That's in this section in chapter 5. These all are functions of, of God, not functions of mere man. Beyond that, Jesus calls the Jews to hear the testimony of witnesses to his claims. Okay, if you, if you need proof, let me call my witnesses. John the Baptist, the, the witness of the miraculous works. This is all the rest of the context of John chapter 5. He says, he says the witness of the Father also. Remember the voice that came from heaven, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? He, he says, here's another witness, the scriptures of Moses and the prophets of old. So he's got four or five witnesses here to what he's saying. We could also add the angels. I mean, think of the angels in Luke 2.11, unto you this day is born in the city of David. Takes you back to Christmas time almost, doesn't it? Yeah, the Messiah, the Christ the Lord is being born there. The angels testified of him. They glorified God and so on. And plus... Jesus doesn't say this, but we can say it. The New Testament scriptures verify who he is. He couldn't say that at the time because they hadn't been written yet, but we have now we have six or seven testifiers to the work and deity of Christ, to the ministry of him as the Son of God. The cumulative testimony of these witnesses make clear that we are reading here about the Son of God. And that's a powerful testimony, if you will receive it. Of course, there are people who are hard-hearted and refuse to receive it, but may God that not be our portion, anybody within these walls or listening online this evening. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you for this further testimony of the mercy of Christ and also of his deity, of his power, of his miraculous working power and how it authenticates him and his ministry. Lord, may we believe in him, not doubt him. In Jesus' name, amen.